Good afternoon and welcome to Startup Nation, our weekly show that celebrates innovation and entrepreneurship. Startup Nation is brought to you by Dublin Business Innovation Centre, where ambitious founders get support to start and scale new businesses. And at Dublin BIC, we work with startups from idea right through to funding and beyond. So I'm Connor Carmody. I hope you'll stay with me over the next hour as we explore the emerging trends in the world of technology and business. And on today's show, we'll be looking at the future of food. And as we know, health and sustainability are driving huge changes and innovations in the food space. There are massive changes happening in terms of what we eat and how that food is produced. And we're seeing things like lab-grown meat, insects in our diet and personalisation in health and nutrition. We're also seeing big innovations in the world of packaging, storage, waste disposal. And it is clear that as consumers become increasingly aware of the impact their actions have on the environment, they will want food solutions that are sustainable from end to end. And that's right from sourcing, production, packaging, storage and up to waste disposal. And this need to be sustainable, this this urgency will see consumers turning to planet positive solutions and, you know, a complete change in mindset. And that goes from how chef chefs create dishes right up to zero waste ethical kitchens and finally i think consumers will continue to prioritize health and wellness and placing greater emphasis on on you know everyday well-being caring for themselves not just when we're unwell but as part of a, a regular routine so we may well see us all looking for food products with enhanced nutrition uh, perceived beauty and skincare benefits as well as ingredients that offer targeted nutrition so there's a lot going on in the world of food and to help us make sense of that, first up, we're delighted to have John Stapleton, an investor and entrepreneur who specialises in the food sector. Our second guest this afternoon will talk about food, and in particular, healthy chocolate. I can't wait. And that's Alison Stroh, who's the co-founder of Dr. Coy's. And finally, for our big interview, we'll chat to entrepreneur, investor and dragon. And I'm delighted that we'll be joined by Alison Kowser. So each week in our Futurescope slot, we explore trends in a particular sector. Uh, we try to provide a global perspective and what's happening on the ground locally as well. And we discuss some of the challenges and the innovations that are being developed to solve these. So to start us off, I'm delighted to be joined by John Stapleton. Uh, John is an investor, uh, an entrepreneur and an advisor to the Board B of Foodworks programme. John, good afternoon. Good to be here. Thanks for having me along, Colin. Great, great to have you. Kick us off, um, tell us a little bit about your background as an entrepreneur and as an investor. Sure. Um, I mean, I'm obviously Irish, you can tell that. Yeah. But I spent most of my working life in, uh, in, in the UK. So after graduating uh, in, in microbiology and then food way back in the mid to late 80s, I, I went to the UK. And I, I went straight into, you know, starting up a business. I didn't know anything about it uh, as an entrepreneur and I set up a company called New Covent Garden Soup Company. Which at the time, way back in 1987, was the pioneer of fresh soup, believe it or not. Well, there was no fresh soup before then, all liquid soup was in a can. Yeah. So, yeah, we, we, we made fresh soup, put it into a carton, like a game top carton, and put it in the fridge where it didn't belong. Everybody told us it was a crazy idea. I guess that's the essence of being an entrepreneur. Yeah. So, yeah, that, that was the first business. It was a 10-year project. We set it up in 87, sold the business in 98. I then went to the States to do something very similar, but also different in, you know, trying to sell fresh soup and a carton to the U.S. market. Um, and there's a whole <clears throat> there's a whole 20 minutes in that conversation alone. Yeah, yeah. It didn't work. It was, it was a failed business. And, and I always say you learn an awful lot more from, from, from your failures than you do from your successes. Um, so, yeah, we, we tried to make it work in the States. It didn't work. I came back um, to uh, live in Germany. My, my, my better half is German. And um, I'm sitting here in Germany right now. 
sticking to you. So 2003, you came back and then set up my third business, which is a company called Little Dish. Right. Strangely, living in Germany, I set it up in London. But that was all about uh, convenient, healthy, tasty meals initially, and then other chilled products for young kids. Not right. for babies, but for toddlers and children. Like that. And we set that business up in 2006 and sold that in 2017. So I guess I've got you know, two reasonably successful businesses surrounded by, or, or in the middle of a famine, sort of, uh, of, of a failed business. So you know, right. I guess you've got to three But So that, that's my entrepreneurial career in, uh, in a nutshell. Thank you so much. The beginning, the middle, and, uh, and not yet the end, those three ventures. But John, you understand the world of food uh, better than most. And what I suppose we're interested in is what are the big trends around food? And, you know, we, we've heard or we hear about sustainability and we hear about health and well-being, convenience. What's your take on the big trends in food production, consumption, innovation? Sure. You've already touched on some of them there. I mean, yeah, because you know, we're all consumers of food. You know, everybody on man, woman on the street is a, is a food and drink consumer. So we're very much aware of this. But really... Top, I think there's five, there are probably more, but the top five are, you know, plant-based. Huge, it's, it's a huge movement. In, in many regards, it's a vocation for for many people. Um, and I heard a statistic the other day that, that, that the number of plant-based products being launched is doubling every year. It's almost exponential. You know, it's like right. every year there's, there's twice as many as there were last year coming out. I'm like, that can't be sustainable forever, obviously. Yeah. But that's a, that's a significant indication of how the food and drink uh, industry is headed. What, what's the driver uh, and what's what's the right. driver behind that John yeah, in plant based what, what's 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 pushing that Sure and, and that's a very interesting question because it's not just one thing it's it's, it's, a, it's a mix of health and and ethical and environmental environmental con, um, concerns you know vegans and vegetarians make up about a quarter uh we'll make up a quarter roughly I think in 2025 that's right of 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 the consumer base um, and, and so, therefore, the industry is striving to provide better animal-free alternatives, products that, you know, these days look and taste and even, even bleed in certain regards, yeah. like the real thing, you know. Uh, so meat alternatives, alternative proteins, pea protein, creating vegan products, you know. So that's the first thing, you know, the mix of health um, and, and, and ethical issues. And then the sustainability piece comes in as well. Yeah. And, 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 you know, food technology is, is, is a great part of the solution here. Food technology has been used to, to, to reduce the carbon footprint all the way from farm to fork, in effect, right? So, so you know, there's, there's a number of ways that this can be this can be addressed, but but that's really what's driving this sort of plant-based revolution, I would call it, at the moment. Okay. The, the other trend, uh, just and move into it, is is that sustainability piece, uh, which which is probably aligned to that, and we are more concerned about where our food is coming from, its provenance, and and how it's how it gets to our plate. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, the, the level of consumer awareness in terms of sustainability has rocketed in the last ten years, and has really got a huge, um, huge momentum in the last three, four, five years as as new means to actually tackle these huge, significant global sustainability concerns. You know, eighty-five percent of consumers believe that businesses um, or businesses' actions should actually help the planet. So, business has a considerable responsibility here, and the food and drink industry obviously is at the forefront of that in terms of sustainability. You know, things like climate change and green credentials and, and feeding the world and, and food security, they're all related to, to, to that sustainability um, message. And, and, and we're also finding that many, many more of the what I call newer generations, I've been around the block for a bit myself, but newer generations are leading the way here in, in terms of looking for a purpose. They very much want 
brand uh, to have similar sort of values as they have. And sustainability is one of the values that yeah. history, maybe in the traditional food and drink world has been missing. And, and now it's coming to the fore. So consumer insight and consumer drive is forcing a lot of the food industry to sit up and take notice and find new solutions to the sustainability challenge that we're facing yeah. um, across, the, across the globe. Yeah. And, and the other the other big uh, one, I suppose, is around kind of health and well-being. And we're now probably getting much more aware and concerned about what we put in our bodies. No question. I mean, I think it's, it, this one actually has been around for such a long time. It's, it's almost part of the furniture. It's almost part of the establishment. It's not really a trend anymore. Yeah. It, it's come to stay. You know, health. Health has been around for such a long time. When we set up New Carbon Garden Tube Company back in '87, there was a, there was a, a health element to the to the um, to the position of the product for for the consumer. Um, clearly, these days it's much more central, you know. Um, but I think different different parts of the community are looking at it in different ways. And of course, COVID and lockdown and the whole pandemic issue has focused consumers' minds in a different way that they didn't look at health before. You know, in terms of immunity, you know, people are people are looking at more holistically also. It's not just diet to provide their immunity. You know, they're also thinking of lifestyle and, and, and work-life balance and, and getting enough sleep and drinking enough water and, and maybe less alcohol. Yeah. Uh, but also trying to look at, you know, the type of products that, does, that do actually deliver an immunity boost to, to the system. So, you know, the palette is, is much more colourful these days in terms of what health really means, health and well-being, let's say, really mean to, to consumers. I think one issue is, you know, um, that, 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 that you know, complements the health um, agenda very well is the clean label focus. You know, people I think are looking at the back of pack and trying to see the uh, a lot less compound ingredients, fewer ingredients. Um, I think you know there's just much more awareness there, especially because of COVID and lockdown. That that that, that, that if, if if we can take care of the planet, then we can also take care of ourselves. So those yeah. two elements are being linked: sustainability and health. Very sure. much so. And if they're, from a consumer perspective, you know, plant-based, health and well-being, uh, there's an element of sustainability and convenience. If that's what we're asking for as consumers, how are the food companies going to respond to us and provide us with that? What are, what are they doing to make that work for us? Well, that comes back to something I said earlier, in terms of, you know, both large companies and small companies. And, and I, think, I think, you know, they both play a very significant part um, in, 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 in driving solutions for consumers. I think, I think maybe small businesses uh, have more of a purpose card to play, if you like, yeah. especially within your uh, consumer base. You know, there's a lot of kind of... I know people are, are like, like drawn this a little bit but about the claims, certainly maybe five, six years ago, seven years ago, claims that large, big food, large corporations and big food were making. And this began to get to a point where they didn't believe it, even if it was true. So, so you know, there's so many years of... They feel at least pulling their wool over their eyes. So, so small businesses have, have filled that vacuum, and, and and startups have been, you know, uh, have have really found a foothold of being genuine and authentic in their claims. Yeah. And as I said earlier, you know, being able to being able to represent their values as a business, and and, and then the younger generation can can, can recognise those values and associate with those values, and therefore they find, you know, they have, they have a personal relationship with the brand. Which, when you're building a brand, not just including drink in any SMTC or in any walk of life. If you have an emotional connection with, with your consumer base, that is fantastic. You know, you can get away with, uh, with doing so much more than, than any of the established industry has done before. So that's for one issue in terms of, you know, the smaller business is particularly driving purpose. But I think also going back to the lab, where, where I originally started way back in UCD, I guess, is, 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 is about the food technological advances that have been made in the last 
again, 10 years, but really accelerated in the last five years. Um, and, and, and now we have solutions, not just in plant-based, but in many, many areas. In, yeah. in, in, uh, in terms of began to really bring these products, which were out of reach before, but bring these products to the marketplace. Right. Um, a specific one, uh, I was looking at a company in the States uh, during the week. They've raised about $150 million uh, in the vertical farming area. Uh, would you explain vertical farming to me? Sure, absolutely. And in fact, I'm, I'm involved in a business um, which is uh, in the vertical farming world in in, um, in the UK. Now, vertical farming, you know, there's lots of different interpretations of what it is, and it is gathering momentum as well. And it is gathering a lot of attention, as you say, in terms of private equity investment. But it's basically, you know, farming indoors for a start, so it's not, it's not outdoors. And it's typically referred to as vertical because it tends to be a lot, quite a high building, if you like, with yeah. lots of slats or lots of trays. And all what you have, really, it's a, it's a hydroponic system. Yes. where plants, and not all plants can be grown vertically, at least not yet, but many, many can. Like green leafy salads is a great area, for example, that, that you can grow indoors. It grows very efficiently. The whole point about it is that you, you're, you're not reliant on the weather, you're not reliant on the seasons, you're not reliant on importing products from Morocco and south of Spain in the winter, which sounds great for, for food miles, it's great for food security. It's very much a, an issue that, that the English are looking at uh, post-Brexit in terms of feeding their own nation post-Brexit, because that's a risk. But uh, in addition to all of that, vertical farming is, is one of the new ways we can actually uh, contribute to the sustainability drive because the, you can produce a huge number of products for much, much less water, for example. You don't need any pesticides. There's a very significant carbon footprint um, reduction. You can set aside food, uh, excuse me, you can set aside land, arable land that you might have been using before for, for growing products and, and rewild that, that land. So that's one of the reasons why it is a solution. It's a technological solution, right, by farming indoors, yeah. farming. technological solution to solve many of these, you know, also feeding the world, right? There's a lot of, a lot of pressure. I mean, one of the issues is, if you think about this, that's a step back, that the food industry has to address on a global scale is we're going to have a population of about 10 billion people by 2050. And how on earth are we going to feed all those? We can't feed them right now, even, even today. So this is very much part of, of a, of a bigger global um, network yes. of, of solutions. But vertic- vertical farming is one piece of it. And it's growing and growing because it's attracting a lot of investment. And, and that is going to be the opportunity to take it from an idea to, to maybe a solution to actually a solution. The investment is there and, you know, private equity and venture capital are really keen to invest in for all the reasons I just mentioned. Very good. Very good. Uh, John, we're just about out of time, but I, I didn't think I'd hear about farming indoors, but it's a fascinating insight into into kind of the future uh, of, of where that might be. Uh, can I say thank you sure. for joining us this afternoon, John? It was great to chat with you and get your, your sense of the food. We could have talked for a lot longer, but I am out of time. So thanks again, John. Not at all. Uh, I'm, I'm very happy to, to, to provide some insight. Listen, as a farmer's son from the west of Ireland, I didn't ever hear it. I'd ever think of uh, farming indoors either, but that's where the industry's taking you, so I'm delighted to be part of it. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Uh, That was John Stapleton. So each week we bring you an innovator who spotted a gap in the market and is developing a new product to address that gap. And now they're going to tell us the how and the why of scaling a business. And I'm delighted to be joined this week by Alison Stroh of Dr. Coy's. Everything we do is as good for you as it tastes. I can't wait. Hi, Alison. Thanks for joining us this afternoon. Hi, Connor. How are you? Very good. Great to hear from you again. Um, tell us what Dr. Coy's does. What What do you do? Yeah, and I see you've captured our new tagline there. It's <laughs> as good for you as it tastes. Um, 
So what we do, basically, we specialise in innovative nutrition. Um, and what that boils down to is we've launched a range of chocolate bars that uh, don't spike your blood sugar levels. So ultimately, we swapped out regular sugar for a very innovative natural sugar that is much better for you in the sense that it provides sustained energy. Um, and we also complement the chocolate range with a range of free from cooking ingredients. Fantastic. To, I suppose, promote healthy eating. And how, explain the science to me, how do you take sugar out and what do you replace yeah. it with? Yeah, so uh, this wasn't my invention. I came across Dr. Johannes Coy when I was working in Germany, actually with HP, Hewlett Packard at the time, and I'd heard Dr. Coy speak at a conference. So he had worked at the Cancer Research Institute uh, in Heidelberg, and he'd been working on cancer research for many years and discovered these sugars that were just more beneficial um, for the metabolism and for energy and not producing insulin, which means you're not getting that spike and crash in your blood sugars. Um, So for me, I thought this is genius. Like, why would you use regular sugar in things like chocolate? Um, So it always stuck with me. And um, he developed initially, I suppose, the range for cancer patients as a treat uh, for those on a particular, possibly a ketogenic diet. Um, But when I moved back then to Ireland and I was on parental leave, I noticed in Ireland, and this was around 2012-13, Gluten-free, dairy-free was a big buzz, but I found when you're looking at snacks, um, they may have been gluten-free and dairy-free, which is great for people with intolerances, but sugar was the number one ingredient, and I just thought that was really unfortunate. So um, I literally flew back to Germany and had a chat to Dr. Coy, and I kind of proposed to him to take this out of the medical field and to make it, um, I suppose, offer it as a more lifestyle yeah. or just make it more mainstream but for me I wanted to kind of mark it as a more lifestyle choice Okay You mentioned something there What is a ketogenic diet? Explain that to me Yeah, so ketogenic diet is um, so it might be a bit of a trend at the moment Some people would be following it for medical reasons Really I suppose some people would be on a strict ketogenic diet where they're cutting out carbohydrates from their diet so it would be a very high fat high protein um, diet and I suppose a lot of the latest research would be pointing to the fact that sugar would be feeding, uh, can be play its part, I suppose, in feeding cancerous cells and promoting the growth of cancerous cells. So a lot of research has been done in that area. And some people will follow that diet maybe um, pre-chemotherapy um, or post-chemotherapy as well, just to kind of, you know, but that has yeah. to be strictly... You know, controlled or monitored strictly or, controlled yeah, by yeah. a doctor yeah or nutritionist so that's not you know we're not promoting that or anything sure, I'm just saying sure. that's that was the background really for for this sugar so as I understand it hearing you talk then you your pitch to Dr. Coy was let's take it from the medical field and try to mainstream this as a product yes correct correct which I mean in essence you know, it, it's suitable for everyone. I suppose the challenge for us is explaining that. Yeah. Uh, so it is, you know, that's one of the challenges in, in terms of it's educating people about a new type of sugar um, that they're not familiar with. So that's why it was for us things like, you know, consumer events and in-store tastings um, are critical because there's only so much we can say on like the site of yeah. a 35 gram bar of chocolate. Yeah. Um, so, and, yeah. And, 
Um, so talk, uh, I'll come back because I want to ask you why chocolate and why not other, but I, I think I understand, but I'll come back to that. Talk to me yeah. about the journey that you've been on over the last couple of years from, from kind of pitching this in Germany to Dr. Coy to, to kind of building the business as you are now. What did that journey look like? Uh, <laughs> busy journey. Uh, I suppose, you know, from 2014 when we like launched as a limited company to now, in a way it's flown by yeah. big learning. You know, I came from a marketing background, but not not necessarily food industry. Um, so obviously steep learning curve and I've enjoyed it, you know, learned loads along the way. We launched initially into the likes of health food stores in Ireland Um yeah. Even Brown Thomas, Lloyd's Pharmacies, Avocas were a big advocate and still are of our brand from day one. Um, and then we went, uh, we launched into Super Value as the first multiple and huge support through the Food Academy program. Um, and then we spread our wings, I suppose, in the last couple of years, you know, to launch into other multiples like Tesco and Dunn's, um, where we're with Tesco now nationwide, which is fantastic. Um, and I suppose just the last couple of years has been about growing the brand, growing brand awareness, um, I suppose, navigating the COVID times where, you know, the grab and go industry has has really been down. So for our chocolate bars, you know, sometimes that has been challenging, but we've had other opportunities in things like the online side of the business, which is just absolutely flying. So we've put some of our energy into focusing on that. Brilliant. Um, and it, as I recall, it was yourself and Aaron, your, I think your brother, uh, who set this up. How how yeah. has the team grown over the last couple of years? Yeah, so uh, we're still a small team. And um, yeah, so literally March 2020, we were looking at getting a bigger office because we needed to take on um, a few more people. So um, now we're a team of five. Excellent. So yeah, so but still looking to grow, yeah. um, and we'd work with um, different consultants even now to grow the export side of the business. So um, constantly growing, but I suppose for in terms of employment last year that took a bit of a you know yeah. I suppose we put things on hold until we saw how everything was going to play out. Along along with lots of uh, along with lots of others, uh, I suggest. Um, yes. Talk. We're a show about innovation and startups. Talk to me about some of the challenges because the food industry is a tough, competitive, low-margin business. Talk Correct. about talk, talk about some of the challenges you faced along the way in kind of growing the business as you've done. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head with uh, those challenges, particularly low margins. It's very low margin. Um, so when you're looking to get your product from whether it's in-house manufacturing or outsourced, getting it literally to the shelf there's so many i suppose steps along the way and distribution so um that's a real challenge i I think and i think that's why many businesses struggle they may have an amazing product even in a small market like ireland but the distribution the merchandising the cost of just keeping your position on the shelf with strong competition from well-established brands is something we would micromanage almost on a daily basis yeah. that is a real challenge you're fighting um, you're fighting for shelf space every day absolutely yeah you could go into a store this week and have beautiful shelf space and it's gone next week yeah. so the budget that you have to put behind that, that i think that's a real challenge yeah. um and then the distribution the wheels you know to get it there um and, and that's not i suppose that's not just in ireland that's everywhere but i suppose you've 
um, some distributors who can help you with that, you know. Yeah. Where, better maybe than others. Yeah. Where are you manufacturing? Are you, you're, you're manufacturing this product yourself here in Ireland, I guess? No, we've actually outsourced manufacturing to okay. a specialist manufacturer in Belgium who their focus would be on using our type of sugar as well as they create uh, sugar-free chocolate as well. So they're, they're quite unique and quite specialist and we've worked with them pretty much from the start. To, to, to kind of to, to, to come up with the, the manufacturing process, to come up with the, the recipes, the menu, I guess, all of that? Uh, yeah, so the recipe itself would have been developed by Dr. Coy, but obviously, you know, it's been tweaked a little bit yeah. over the years. But yeah, it was his recipe. So the recipe uh, or the ingredients that we use and the combination of them are actually patented on a worldwide basis because it was so unique to use the vitamin E that we use and these low glycemic sugars. They've never been used like this before in, in this combination in chocolate or in beverages. So he actually has patented patents for beverages as well. Yeah. Um, so it, it's a patented recipe, but our manufacturer, um, I suppose, the sugar, it's not a regular sugar. So, yeah, you know, in terms of the manufacturing process, they have to get used to working with this as well. We were talking at the start of the show uh, before you joined us, Alison, with uh, John Stapleton, and we were talking about oh, yeah. health and well-being uh, as a key trend in the industry, um, yeah. uh, particularly in the food industry. What, what's your take on that? Yeah, I think absolutely. I think it's amazing. And I, I think it's been, you know, you could you might have thought it was exploding in 2014. But yeah. and, and I always thought we were a little bit ahead of our time, because even now, there's a lot of research going into other sugars, one which you know, uh, Dr. Coy would use as well, tagatose. So big, you know, cargill and a lot of the big um, sugar producers are now starting to spend money in terms of looking at alternatives to sugar because I think the the pressure is on to really provide you know a, a better for you alternative yes um, because uh, like our sugar particularly the galactose it's literally about a hundred times the price of regular sugar wow so that's that's a huge cost and I think potentially that's why many of the bigger manufacturers you know haven't used it to date it's a cost um, issue it, it would drive up their retail it, price it's so such a big cost issue. But in terms of health and wellness, I really think now there's so many natural ingredients, like we're using a plant-based vitamin E in our chocolate. So each bar would provide you about 50% of your recommended daily allowance of vitamin E. And we're using a plant-based fiber in the chocolate. So the bars are high in fiber. So I think that whole area of almost food, natural foods, you know, being carriers for vitamins and other things like collagen, for example, is, yeah. you know, seeing a real explosion at the moment um, and right. other vitamins being added into food if they didn't already have them. So Super. I suppose in a sense, it's sometimes food, you know, can be seen as more a functional as well. It yes. has a function. It always had a function. But um, this is more like a functional chocolate. So it's providing you with, with benefits. I love it. Functional chocolate. I have about 10 seconds left, Alison. Yeah. What is the vision for the future? Yeah, so growth. I mean, we're on a real path of growth at the moment. Um, and I suppose that we're, now it's export. So we're looking at the Nordics and really focusing on the UK. And we have some exciting things there uh, that we're working on at the moment, um, as well as more NPD and developing new and exciting products. So okay. we've... Um, yeah, really exciting things coming out over the next year. Fantastic. Well, the very best of luck in the future. And uh, thanks, Alison, for joining us this afternoon. 
Thank you so much, Connor. Hopefully see you soon. See you soon. That was Alison Stroh of Dr. Coy's uh, joining us there. Um, on our inside track uh, this afternoon, uh, Dublin Bic runs a quarterly event. It's a, a hybrid event. We call it Funding and Scaling. And it seeks to give you know, knowledge, connections to businesses that are looking to scale. And we had an event last week and uh, our legal experts, OBH partners, they joined us there and they were going through some of the legal must-knows for startups and scale-ups. And I thought it was an interesting uh, discussion we had with Orla last week and I thought I might share some of the basic uh, concepts that we talked about uh, when we were at the thing last week. And firstly, as a startup, um, I think one of the key things is, is setting yourself up as a company, establishing a really good legal structure, uh, getting the company registered, agreeing your shareholding structure. And it would help at that stage to get some advice um, to kind of make sure that you set a foundation correctly, particularly in relation to your, your shareholding. As you develop the business, you'll most likely start to take on some funding. Um, and that that's kind of what you're after to help you grow. And at that stage, you'll probably start to come across some some terms and we might just chat about those briefly. Uh, one of the ones you may hear is a term sheet. Uh, and this is the document that an investor, a potential investor in your business will send to you. And it outlines how they would like to invest in your company. Um, and it's kind of the starting point. You may very well hear a discussion around a shareholder or subscription agreement. And that then is the contract, the document that you and your investor will sign. Um, effectively, the contract between you both uh, determining how you're going to work together takes a bit of time to get that right uh, and needs a good bit of detail. You'll also hear about governance. Um, and one of the things we hear about is, will I need a board? Will I need some directors? How will the company be run? And it certainly would help you to get some external advice there in terms of the structure that you're going to set up, who's going to join your business and how that's going to work. Um, that's a very brief overview. Uh, you, you'll understand that there's a lot to think about. So the summary advice we left from the event last week is twofold. Firstly, find a good advisor to help you chart a course, a course through this process and make sure you agree a fixed price or a package deal with your advisor. They will do that, uh, particularly at the early stage startup. So make sure you discuss that. Find a good advisor, set a price and help them to get you set up. That's our inside track for this week. We'll take a break and we'll come back with Alison Kowser, so don't go away. So welcome back to Startup Nation, our weekly salute to innovation, entrepreneurship and the technologies that are shaping our future world. And as we've been discussing, starting and scaling businesses is a tough uh, proposition. And each week we speak to a founder entrepreneur who has succeeded to see if we can uncover some ingredient that might just inspire or motivate some of our listeners. And today I'm delighted to welcome Alison Kowser, an entrepreneur and investor. Good afternoon, Alison, and thank you for joining us today. Hello, Connor. Good to be here. Thanks so much. To start us off, tell us a bit about you and your background. Uh, we'd love to hear a little bit about the behind-the-scenes story of Alison Kowser. Right. So I suppose uh, I mean I've been involved in business really since I was about seventeen. I went straight from from school to work, um, and uh, always loved what I do. I've been lucky enough to work in areas that, that for me were you know just just really enjoyable. So I started off my career in marketing. Um, Worked for years with the agency that managed Jack Charlton and the Irish Worker team back in the, the 80s and 90s. So that was a fantastic beginning to anybody's career in terms of being involved in all that. Italian 90? Um, Italian 90, Euro 88, uh, New York in the 94, the whole lot, yeah. It was oh, fantastic. fantastic. Yeah, such, such a time so, in the country, yeah. It was. Um, and, you know, I suppose that was, that was kind of my starting point in, in the whole world of marketing, um, which I continued for, for a number of years and worked in, in Ireland and then in the UK with L'Oreal and then came back to Ireland. Um, about 20 years ago now to get involved in the food industry. So um, 
worked on a buy-in of a, of a um, what was previously a, a group of Irish brands under international ownership, um, brands like uh, Fruitfield and Chef and Silverman. So um, we, we bought that business um, from Nestle and, uh, and then rolled it into another business. And, and I suppose that's it's in the food industry ever since, really. Very good. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing all about this. But before we start on your kind of entrepreneurial journey, which has been fantastic, um, we've been talking this afternoon about the future of food and the the trends and the changes that are coming down the track. And I'd love to get your take on it. What's what's at a macro level or a global level? What's happening in the food industry? Um, I suppose at a macro level, I mean, there's absolutely enormous innovation and change happening. Um, I mean, firstly, I suppose just maybe to put it in context, the, you know, if we look at where we are now beginning to emerge out of COVID, I think, you know, the first thing to say about probably the Irish food industry and, and certainly Europe, at European level, it's held up pretty well. You know, we didn't see uh, absolute disasters run on, on stock that we might have expected. Yes, there were queues for the supermarkets, but, but the, the, you know, the, 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 the food delivery system, yeah. the supply chains have held up reasonably well. And I think, you know, huge shout out to everybody involved for keeping the nations fed over yes. the last yeah. uh, year and a half. I think it's important to say that. You know, from the retailers and the producers and, and all the way back to the farmers, I think everybody's really done a good job to Agreed. make sure that Agreed. we yeah. all, we all, you know, even though it's been very, very tough for the last year and a half for everybody, um, you know, we, we didn't starve, you know, and this part, this part of the world we didn't, that's not the case in the developing world, and that's a very different scenario over there. But ultimately, huge change happening all the time across the food industry. We're seeing, I'm really looking forward to beginning to understand what the consumer is going to be thinking and doing and buying over the next year, because it's kind of thrown a bit of a grenade into our habits, um, what we eat, uh, where, we, where we shop, um, how we cook. All of those big macro questions are changing uh, hugely. And I think there's big opportunities for many food industry, um, many in the food industry. There's others that will have to really change to, to address some of those some of those big changes. Um, so, you know, I, I think it's never been a time of more, more change. And to dig into that a little bit, when you, you know, we're, we're all looking to be more healthy. Um, uh, we all are very concerned about sustainability. Um, Correct. Uh, we're, we're, we want to know where our food is coming from, how it's been cooked, how, how it's been packaged. What, yeah. what, what sort of innovations have you have you uh, observed there? Um, I think there's, there's, there's a kind of a, a bit of a, a bit of an argument going on in the heads of consumers at the moment. Um, you know, the sustainability aspect is absolutely huge. Um, constant. Um, need for more information about food traceability the local by local piece uh has has been really strong in the last year um particularly as communities sort of bound together and and look to themselves for support over over the covid period so we're seeing a lot of um you know move to to local food which i think is which is great um as an exporting nation like ireland we we need to be clear that we still we still need to ensure that uh, other countries are buying our food so there's a huge job to be done on on, on continuing that that good work that would be and and the agencies are doing in, in promoting Irish food abroad. But the sustainability piece, um, I mean, has two legs. There's the local piece, buying local, but there's also the actual sustainability of the products that you're, that you're eating. Yeah. Um, and we've seen consumers really delving into, you know, where is it coming from? What is the packaging um, like? You know, how can we reduce plastics? Um, and really just taking a much more holistic view of what's in it. The, the difficulty is that all of those new um I suppose demands and, and quite right demands um, cost money, and, yeah. and the consumer uh, is, is absolutely balking at the prospect of food inflation, which is something we haven't really seen in this country for, for a long time. 
Uh, it's beginning to happen now in terms of commodities prices are starting to rise internationally. Um, so yeah, there's a you know the, 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 I suppose consumers now will, will need to start making choices about um, uh, how how they're going to eat and what they're going to eat and ultimately what's important to them. Um, and that whole concept of you know the food industry, yes, it's about shareholder value, but it's also really about stakeholder value and ensuring that whatever we're doing is bringing people with us um, at all aspects from suppliers. Um, retailers and particularly consumers so that we're ultimately we're producing good food that um that tastes great and, and and that people enjoy yeah and over the last year and a half we the food industry i suppose has been hit with a double whammy in both covid and in brexit um are they are they have you have you seen that impact on the ground with with the companies that you work with yeah i mean the brexit piece um you know we were so well prepared in this country and set in the sense of the, the agencies Enterprise Ireland would be all of the uh, the government, the, the revenue, customs, everybody has been incredibly supportive uh, across the food industry in terms of preparing businesses for what was going to happen. Unfortunately, that, that did not happen in the UK and right. there was an element of kind of sleepwalking into it. And, and, and now a lot of UK businesses still are surprised with the implications of what Brexit has, has done. Um, and they're not, you know, they may not be prepared. And in that case, you know, we're seeing scenarios where, you know, it's just a surprise to them that they have to change their ways in any sense, um, yeah. which is difficult. Um, you know, it's difficult for SMEs as well because you could get to a point where a British retailer or a British customer or even a British supplier may just decide it's too much hassle. And if you're not a big customer, I'm not that interested, you know. Yeah. Um, and that we see that a lot with smaller food, food companies, you know, having difficulties getting food in, getting supplies in, particularly that would have come through the UK, through the land bridge. Yeah. Um, and if those big distributors, you know, continue to take it through the, the, the Lambert's through the UK, it, it, it does cause hassle. And um, we've had some instances of hazelnuts sitting in Dublin port for weeks because we couldn't manage to get them couldn't through. Couldn't get the them through. But, you know, um, yeah. finding ways around it. But it's just hassle, you know, and it's, it's hassle you don't need. But well, that's, that's the landscape we live in now. We just have to get on with it. We have to find, find ways around it and build new markets in, in, in other countries, which has always been the case. Um, in terms of getting getting off the island, um, but the impetus is even greater now. Um, that's that's interesting because we are an island nation, and we you know we export. And and when we're working with entrepreneurs at Dublin Big, you know that traditionally or historically the UK would have been the first market, the go to market to to kind of get off the island. Do you do you see that changing? That you know when you're advising and working with your company and indeed your own companies, is it that is it that the UK, while still very important, is not maybe the only next step, but there are other next steps to be developed. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to kind of get out of the, you know, the easy way of doing it, which was simply go directly to the UK with the same language. The culture is relatively similar. Eating patterns and, and consumer tastes are quite similar. Um, even the palate is quite similar in terms of the recipes that you would use for products um, between the, the, the Irish and the UK market. That's, you know, so that makes it really easy from yes. that perspective. But it's also a bit lazy in the sense of actually, you know, getting out and, and, and realizing that um, while our nearest neighbor is, is, is probably a strategic market across, across many industries, you know, we, we do need to spread it and we do need to get out. Unfortunately, that has coincided with COVID, yeah. where we haven't been able to get off the island. I know. <laughs> all the trade shows have been cancelled, all the, you know, opportunities to go and show your wares. And, you know, we would have exhibited generally a couple of, three or four times a year at different shows in, in um, Amsterdam, in, 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 in Cologne, in Paris. Yeah, but yeah. That's, all, that's all stopped. Now, it has happened online. 
but it's not quite the same. It's hard to taste a biscuit online. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Particularly in the food world. I mean, in other in other sectors you can, but as you say, here's my biscuit. Uh, you can't taste mm. it, but you can see it. Yeah, yeah. We everybody's taking technology, obviously on board. Um, there's lots of work going on. You know, again, Borby has been amazing doing virtual um, trade shows and you know really working with companies with with SMEs, with, with, you know, even with smaller companies to bring bring up the game really on, on, yeah. on all of that um, but we're so looking forward to getting back to the opportunity to stand in front of customers and, and also you know to show from our perspective in the East Coast Bakehouse to show off our, our wonderful Bakehouse our wonderful yeah. factory where, where normally we would have visitors coming in you know to, to, to seal the deal I suppose on, on new contracts and, and, and all of that we've been doing virtual tours you know right. and we've been doing I suppose getting to the point of contracts and signing contracts with people that you know previously would never have happened without a number of physical interventions visits whatever they have happened thankfully but it's just a different way of doing things and you know that's i suppose that's a new reality but it you know that 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 taking the food element taking the experience element out of food selling is quite a difficult thing it's it is amazing though and every week when we do this chat with with various entrepreneurs how things that we said we couldn't do pre-COVID, it turns out we can actually do them and maybe Absolutely. not exactly as we thought, mm. but but yeah. we've actually learned how to adapt quite well. So the, the innovation yeah. and the human spirit is still there. Can I talk a little bit about your entrepreneurial journey and um, your first, you mentioned at the outset, your foray is coming back in and, and kind of acquiring and setting up Jacob Fruitfield. What prompted that? I, I think you'd been in, in the UK, you were moving back um we were, yeah. So Michael and I, my husband Michael Clary, um, we were living in the UK for a number of years um, and decided to, we wanted to, to move back to Ireland. Um, uh, I was pregnant at the time, so it was a, an impetus to make changes time, in time your life. Come um, back, yeah. <laughs> I can remember one of my neighbours in the UK saying that, uh, gosh, you're pregnant too? Oh yeah, there are, are, they'll be in the same class in school. I'm thinking, oh no, they won't because I'm, I'm going back to Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> I'm raising my kids at home. It's a very visceral kind of thing. I don't know. Um, so I did. I did the same. We were. We were. Uh, Anna and myself were living in Russia, and we came back. Uh, it mm-hmm. prompted exactly. The, there is this yeah. piece about coming home and starting your family uh, back back where yeah. you're from. Yeah. Um, so we were looking for opportunities, and um, the um, at the time, Nestle Business Internationally were divesting themselves of what they were calling non-core international brands. So they had baskets of, of, the, of local brands all over. Uh, Europe and various other countries. Um, so they were selling off what was their Irish business at the time, which included brands like Fruitfield Jam, uh, Old Time Irish Marmalade, and Chef Sauces, um, Silverman's Confectionery, you know, various basket of, of good old Irish brands that, yeah. that they had owned. Um, and they decided, um, slightly complicated arrangement, they were selling it to Premier Foods, and then Premier Foods didn't want that basket, so they sold it to us. So went in and took over the, that business, um, took it from a loss-making scenario as, as a kind of a, an international arm of a very large company um, to very much a local business. We we, um, we drove it very very much as a local Irish business um, and took it to profitability within a year and then looked to, I suppose, build on that and then took uh, took a look at Jacobs at the time, which was being sold by Danone. Again, a similar scenario, selling off a local business uh, by an international group, and merged the two and, and they became the Jacob Fruitful Group, which... Um, which we ran for a number of years, grew and then sold it to Valio. And as you know, Valio have just sold the entire that. food group that they that they had um, purchased. Ours was at the very beginning of their food journey, or, or almost at the beginning of their food journey. Uh, and then they went on to, to acquire many more businesses and rolled them all up and had a, a wonderful sale from their shareholders' perspective. Um, Fantastic. Last week, before last year. I'm interested in what, so you're a marketeer and 
you know, you're talking about those brands that, that resonate, Jacobs and these kind of traditional Irish brands. Were you looking at this basket of, of brands, as you called it, and saying these are, are kind of underdeveloped or these have been allowed to languish, but they actually have a strong brand heritage and actually they're just waiting to be tapped? That was very much the feeling that we had. They had loyal customers. Um, many of the brands were still number one or two in their categories, but they just weren't big enough or interesting enough for an organization like Nestle or Danone at the time to, I suppose, you know, continue to put in the work that was required. Um, I suppose us coming on board, coming in with a group of um, uh, investors and shareholders uh, really saw an opportunity to drive them again, you know, to reinvigorate them, um, to innovate, you know, a lot of innovation needed um, to, to keep those categories alive. Um, and, and that's what's happened and, and those brands have continued to, to grow and, and prosper. Um, so that was, you know, that was, I suppose, from a you know, point of view of, of, of seeing what, what's possible, you know, to take, take a, a, an established brand and, and work it and, and, and make it more relevant to, to the consumer and, and innovate. I think that's, you know, that's an exciting thing to be involved in. And we've been talking about, you know, the food business is a tough business. It's a, a kind of a low margin business. You're, you're fighting for shelf space. Um, every day, uh, it's a daily battle. Um, and as you were looking at the business, um, and you had you had the marketing background, but you necessarily didn't have the 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 food background, uh, the understanding of the food industry. Did you consider that uh, like as a as a big challenge for you? Um, well, Michael did. Michael worked for food industry since his whole career, so he worked with Kellogg's, he worked with Danone. Um, okay. he had worked with Jacobs previously, so you know there was certainly a team there that understood food. Um, so yeah, we, we we put together a team that really understood the food industry, and, and you know, I suppose that has stood to us over the years that 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 level of um, understanding, yeah. both of the consumer and marketing and branding, but but also of of the industry as, as a whole. I mean, it's, you know, looking back, you know, twenty years ago, the food industry was not a sexy industry. You know, yeah. if you weren't in IT, you were nobody kind of thing yeah. in those days. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now the food industry is absolutely thriving in terms of the number of people that want to get involved in food you know you have whole you have master's degrees now at the university in food and in food innovation and hundreds of thousands of people at you know exiting the third level every year saying you know what do what, what do you want to do with the rest of your life i want to work in the food industry i mean that's just a spectacular yeah. change from where it used to be um and yes it is a, a tough industry but it's also a really rewarding industry to work in. You know, the very few industries where you can every day or every week or you know whatever your your shopping habits are, walk down the aisle of a of a major retailer and see a product on the shelf that you know you were involved in in other you know recipe development, brand development, marketing, whatever you know that you can actually plot that that course and and actually see it in reality on the shelf, and that's yeah. really satisfying for anybody involved in the food industry to get to that point. And so you. Arguably, you were ahead of your time. Uh, was there a sense uh, of timing for you uh, as you were doing this, as you were looking about reinvigorating these brands, or did it just fall into your lap, uh, to use that phrase? Well, anybody on, you know who's out there looking to get involved in an investment, an investment in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in either a startup or or, or start or investing in an established brand, you know, you can say it's all about timing, but the reality is you just have to wait for the right opportunity to arrive, and then you have to recognise either it's the one for me or it's not. You don't really have the luxury of saying, I'll pass on this one and, you know, it might not be perfect and I'll move on to when the next opportunity comes up because there may not be a next opportunity, yeah, yeah. you know. You really do have to, and, and there's so much going on, even at the moment, there's so much going on in terms of mergers and acquisitions and all of that across the industry. And yes, a lot of them are strategic, but they still start with somebody issuing an information memorandum that says we're, we're on the market, you know, and, and that's what you have to react to if you're involved in, in investing and, 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 you know, similarly if you're selling, you need to get out there and, and just make it clear that you, you know, that you, you, you've 
Um, and the timing thing is very often a matter of luck. I think you know it's you can do all the due diligence and, and all of that, but, but you know it's either on the market or it's not, and you want it or you don't, and that's that's the crucial bit. Right. Deciding you pick the right the right opportunities, and you don't always you know things don't always work out. Yeah, investing is a risky business, um, yeah. a really risky business, and. I think you have to go with your eyes open and realize that some of it is, you know, when it, when it works, it's great. When it doesn't, you have to be you know, take it on the chin and move on to the next one. Yeah, yeah. So having done that, and as you say, exiting out to Valeo, you you took another look at the market and now you're, you've come back with East Coast Bakehouse. Um, talk to me a little bit about what, what does that business do? Okay, so we are a biscuit manufacturing business. Um, we're based in Drogheda. Um, we have a very large uh, bakehouse, which... Um, has a, a world-class manufacturing facility, ability to create fantastic products, um, innovation. And, and then, you know, it's not just about our brand. We're, we're, out, we're out in the market across all the retailers in Ireland and, and uh, the UK and, and further afield. But it's also about um, making for other other brands and other retailers. So three legs to our stool, I suppose, our brand, which which we're very proud of, which has done really well for us. Yeah. Um, our, our business we work for making for other supermarkets and also making for other brands so that really came about as a, a, I suppose a, a view on Irish manufacturing more than anything else you know we have a huge number of small food manufacturing businesses in Ireland and, and you know the food innovation that's happening there the quality of food um, the connection to local markets the, you know the, the sourcing all of that is absolutely fantastic and, and Ireland is very proud of that we then have a couple of huge you know, massive companies like the Guinnesses and Kerry's and Bobby's of this world. But there's not an awful lot in between in terms of large-scale manufacturing. And I think, you know, any healthy food industry needs that band in the middle. Um, So we thought as a startup we were going to go with a very large startup. We're not, you know, it's not not a grow into the, into the business, it's start big and, and then, you know, take it from there. Um, And I say start big, you know, we literally started day one with not a single customer. Yeah. Um, with a huge factory, so that was a bit scary, as you can imagine. Um, <laughs> yeah. And why Why do you think, you, so you mentioned there's the, the big boys uh, and then there's a lots of small, but there was this gap in the middle. And why had that? Why did that gap exist? Uh, why Why hadn't anyone filled that before you came along? Well, there's plenty, you know, there are businesses, obviously, in, the, in that year, but not enough of them. Um, a lot of them would have been bought over by international companies or, or just, you know, it's very hard to start a large-scale startup because it's massive capital um, yes. required at the beginning. Um, we had to raise uh, funds from a number of sources and we had a group of very good investors and banks and Enterprise Ireland and, you know, hats off to all of them for coming on board to, to, to go on with us on the journey. So, you know, it's not a question of buying a small machine and, and then graduating to a slightly larger one and then you know, a bigger one five years later. We bought the whole kit, brand new, um, put in massive investment. Um, we have an 80 metre long oven. We have a 400 metre long um, integrated production wow. line. So it's, it's, it's world-class manufacturing with all of the elements there that, that you know, deliver the very best for, for our customers and, and consumers. Um, but that requires investment. So, you know, it was it was a question of starting big and um, almost a kind of build and they will come kind of mentality, yeah, yeah. which, uh, <laughs> which, <laughs> which they have. <laughs> look, looking back sounds very easy, but uh, I can imagine when you're doing it, it's kind of different. But, but yeah, pres- we're still, look, we're on a journey, you know. I mean, your introduction of people who've been there made it kind of thing, it always makes, I think, anybody in, in the scenario of uh, being described in that, that context, you know, we're all, we're all, waking up every morning with a new challenge and a new opportunity in front of us and you know I don't think you can ever say you've, you've got there you know you, there's, there's always um, yeah. always bumps in the road and, and we're you know in a business of high, requiring hard growth high growth which we are uh, experiencing thank goodness um, you know it, it, it's 
it's constant work to, to, to move on and, and, and never complacent to say we're there. We're not there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, little, you know. but it's, a, it's a journey, that old phrase of it's a journey uh, that, that you go through on it. But th- to, to understand maybe the scale of what you've done with that business over the last couple of years, I mean, you're, you mentioned that you're kind of your own brand, you have the supermarkets, you have your, your kind of the own label piece. Um, number of employees, if you can, or just, so a, I suppose, a general just, size just of that business? 50, just under 50. Wow. Um, we're operating just on one shift at the moment and, yeah. and we have the potential to go to three shifts. So really starting to look at, you know, how we expand it, into that um, into full capacity, I suppose, ultimately. That's, that's what we're aiming for. Um, also doing a huge amount of work on innovation. So we're, uh, so a lot of the products we're working on now are, you know, looking at those really high growth segments of the market, looking at protein, um, with a lot of protein, uh, new, new protein products coming through for, for customers. Um, we've just launched a new vegan range, which has done extremely well. Um, wow. And uh, that's the launch on the Irish and the UK market. So lots of work in, in, in those areas. It's, it's not just about churning it hundreds of tons of biscuits. It's about, you know, really understanding what consumers are looking for and, and then working with a great team on, uh, you know, fantastic people who really understand how to make brilliant uh, products. Um, our, our biscuits have win awards, at, you know, Black and Heron every year, every single year since we started, we've, we've been, it's been, been, been awarded. So it is about the food. You know, we yeah. talk about the biggest production line in Europe, if you wish, and, and that's, we, we, you know, we're, we're very pleased to be able to put that together. But it's about what comes off the line. It's about the products that, that consumers love and, um, you know, that are part of part of their daily, um, daily, I suppose they're just, what gives them a little bit of joy because that's yeah. what ultimately what, what the products we, we do. We're in the, you know, we're in the treats business. Um, we, we, we're happy to admit that. Um, yeah. It's 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 an area that um, I think you know, people are looking to, to balance their diets. But you know, Fantastic. the indulgence piece is still important. Yeah, you're also uh, among the many other hats that you wear, Alison. I, I don't know how you fit it all in, but you're also an investor uh, both through HBAN and we would have seen you on on TV uh, on the Dragon's Den. Um, is that still a part of what you do in terms of driving that investment side? Yeah, I mean, I've a um, Mainly focusing on, on the East Coast Bakehouse at the moment, but we also have a number of investments in um, in food. I mean, I was very clear in my, my Dragon's Den investments, but most of what I got involved in was food. Um, I suppose that's what I feel I can add a little bit of value. Yeah. I have an investment in a seaweed business, um, which is absolutely flying. Um, company based on the west coast of, of Clare. Um, just, you know, that whole area of, of food, um, the nutritional aspects of food and, and, and you know, some fantastic ingredients like seaweed, what that can bring to a diet and yeah. what it can bring in terms of, um, you know, I suppose almost that food as medicine type uh, proposition. Um, and that's doing really well. I've also invested in, in, in a bone broth company. Again, quite, you know, similar proposition in terms of health and wellness and uh, uh, Sadie's Kitchen is the, is the bone I broth. I know, I remember the uh, name. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, she's doing great. Um, again, you know, just addressing, you know, I suppose almost getting back to the, the good old-fashioned, you know, Original ingredients of food, you know. I mean, seaweed, yeah. seaweed is something that comes out of the out of the, the sea. It's free. Um, it's a ma- massively important resource for for communities. Um, you know, bone broth is something your grandmother used to make, and yeah, yeah. Uh, ultimately, lots of health health benefits. But getting back to basics, lifestyle today's yeah. today's lifestyle doesn't really fit with boiling up chicken bones for hours in the kitchen. Um, and so it's presented in very convenient format. So it's just taking some of those real truths about food and, and maybe delivering them in a much more convenient way for consumers. So that's the kind of area I'm really interested in, okay. how we can bring all that through to, to fit with nat- normal, everyday, 21st century lifestyles. And that's really important that we can link those two things. Very good. Um, 
last question or two from me. Um, you're also involved in a number of boards and I was, I was reading particularly around uh, women for election uh, as, as a cause. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, I suppose I'm, I'm, I've always been involved in um, and, and hugely interested in, in the whole area of equality and uh, diversity and ensuring that, that you know, the, the boardrooms we sit in, the meetings we sit in, the businesses we work in, and ultimately, you know, the, the, the government and, and the political structure around us represents people and, and looks and feels and, and, and listens, you know, it sounds like the people that it represents. Unfortunately, that's not the case with our politics. So at the moment, only uh, 23% of our TVs are female. Um, and, and all of those decisions that are made every day about everybody's lives are, are made by a group of people that's kind of eighty percent, maybe odd percent male. Yeah. So that really is something that I think, um, and many people believe needs to change. So what Women for Election do, which which I chair, we train and support and mentor women across Ireland to uh, enter the political process and, and to succeed. Um, so actually, COVID has seen an incredible growth in what we've been doing. We would have previously delivered most of our work in person. Yeah. Um, COVID has brought us online, and um, in the last year we've we've been um, training events and, and uh, mentoring events, and I suppose role modelling events have brought in, and Fantastic. we've had just under two thousand women across the country get involved. Um, so we bring them through, and we introduce them, I suppose, to that whole area. Um, and with you know many of the current uh, TVs and and um, local uh, um, councillors across the country have come through our programmes. Um, it's something that. You know, society needs to change, and I suppose we, Absolutely. we believe we can make an input there that that gets better decisions at the end of the day. Because Fantastic. if you've got a group of people sitting around the table that don't represent, um, you know, the, the reality of life for for the population, you're, you're not going to get decisions that really benefit that population. Superb. Thank you so much, Alison. Thank you so much for joining us this afternoon and for sharing your story with us. No problem. Thank you, Connor. Well, that's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed our discussion on the new world of food. Do join us again next week when we'll be looking at the business of cybersecurity. And we have seen what the impact of a targeted attack on our health service can do. We've seen that over the last few weeks. So how can we protect ourselves and how can businesses adapt and safeguard against these threats? We hope that the stories you heard today will inspire you. If you have a great idea and are thinking of starting or scaling a company and would like some support, do get in touch with us at startup at dublinbic.ie. That's it for this week. Please do join us again next week at 12 for Startup Nation.